What is going on, Wellness Gang? Welcome back to Embodied Wellness Radio, a podcast framed around making women healthy again. And I do want to preface this by saying that this podcast is not just for women. This is for everyone, male, female, no matter how you identify, this is a great educational podcast for all. Joining us today is Kim Vopney. She is a self-professed pelvic health evangelist and is known as the vagina coach. Add that to the list of things I never thought I would say in my life, but Kim is also a certified fitness professional who wants to end the suffering associated with pelvic floor dysfunction. She's a published author, a passionate speaker, and a women's health educator. Kim is the founder of the Pelvian Wellness Inc., a company offering pelvic health programs, products, and coaching for women in pregnancy, motherhood, and menopause. She also co-founded, grew, and sold a company called Bellies Inc., where she created the Ab System, a revolutionary birth prep and recovery system for pregnant women. Her annual event, Kegels and Cocktails, has helped hundreds gain knowledge, and her Buff Muff app is ensuring everyone knows how to do Kegels and actually does them. Kim also certifies other fitness and movement professionals to work with women with core and pelvic floor challenges through her Core Confidence Specialist Certification. You can find her online at www.vaginacoach.com and on her social media at Vagina Coach. And the notes for today's podcast can be found at embodiedwellnessco.com slash blog slash vagina coach. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate the lovely introduction. Thank you so much for having me. We're so excited to have you on. And this is an area where I have not explored that much. However, we're working with more and more women who are getting pregnant or wanting to get pregnant. And I feel like this is still a pretty taboo topic, right? And so a lot of women don't really understand how important pelvic floor health is just in general, but also for having a healthy pregnancy and for supporting your body postpartum. So we are so stoked to be able to share this with our listeners and just really spread the word on how important it is to have a healthy and able pelvic floor. No, I totally agree. And it's also like, I was almost more excited than Sarah to have you on when I first discovered you only like a couple weeks back because I was like, this is something where I, my side of the business is Sarah does all the nutrition side of things. I do a lot of the training side and we have more and more women coming to us, like Sarah was saying, who are looking to get pregnant. And I haven't put in years and years of experience into helping women through the pregnancy from the physical aspect side of things for the physical fitness. So I got super excited and ordered your book, the Pel uh, your pelvic floor, which is your newest book of, of three that you've um, authored. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But can you tell us a little bit more about how you became the vagina coach? Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, well, like, like when you said, you know, when you said my name, the vagina coach didn't think you would ever say that online. Well, I certainly didn't grow up thinking that I would be a vagina coach and, you know, blatantly sharing all this very private information through social media. But at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's information that needs to be shared and I think needs to be shared much earlier. So how I got into it was if I go back all the way to sixth grade, I was watching a childbirth video as part of our sex education program. And I looked at that and said, Nope, I'm not doing that. And, but I went home and I looked at my mom a little differently. And I looked at all the women in my life differently and said, well, they did it. And so I sort of grew up with this fear fascination about pregnancy and birth. And then when I met my husband and decided I wanted to start a family, I was really determined to have a different story than my mom. So she had had episiotomies, which is where they cut, uh, called the perineum part of the, the pelvic floor for vaginal childbirth. And it used to be standard practice. She had incontinence. She had chronic back pain. She had a tummy that wouldn't flatten. She had a hysterectomy. So there was sort of this, you know, again, path painted that pregnancy is really 
challenging, which, which it is to the body, but knowing what I know now, I think there's a lot of information that had it been shared with my mom or had I known what I knew at the time, then I think she could have avoided a lot of what she was dealing with. So anyway, I was determined to do everything I possibly could to have a different story than my mom. And my midwives had recommended a biofeedback device to me called the EpiNo. And EpiNo stands for no episiotomy. And it's a, it's a silicone balloon. It's attached to a pump and you put the balloon inside your vagina, insert it or pump a little bit of air up. And then what it does is it gives you some feedback. So when you contract and relax your muscles, it allows you to see on the gauge what your pelvic floor is doing. And it can also do what's called perineal massage, which is essentially stretching the tissue. So introducing sensations that are trying to mimic what you experience in childbirth and, uh, and, and prepare your pelvic floor. So that's how it started. I had a great experience with this product. I opened up an e-commerce store, started preaching pelvic health, learned about pelvic floor physical therapy, met two other women. We formed this, that other company, Belly Zinc that you mentioned uh, in my bio and was growing the two businesses for a number of years. Um, and at the time I was working primarily with pregnant women and, and new moms and fitness doula actually was my original kind of brand because I was a personal trainer and I had also trained as a doula. So I was doing that, but then more and more people were coming to me after the fact. And some people had never even given birth saying, Hey, I'm 45 years old and I'm dealing with this, or I gave birth five years ago. Can you help me now? And so fitness doula started to lose a little bit of its, um, it didn't resonate with the people who were say in perimenopause or menopause, especially the people who had never given birth before. So I knew I needed a little bit of a brand change. And about, I think it's about five or six years ago. Now I was speaking to a group of women entrepreneurs at a, at a conference. It was the mompreneur conference. And we had all sorts of business coaches speaking to us. And then I came up and did my talk. And when I came up on stage, I joked, well, now you have a vagina coach for your business. So it was, it was a joke, but it was a light bulb moment where I said, that's it. It's, it's a word that nobody likes to say. It brings attention to the exact part of the body that I want people to, to be paying attention to. And, and it also makes people stop and just say, did I just hear you correctly? So I said, all right, that's, that's my new, that's my new handle. So that was again, five or six years ago that it kind of made that switch to the vagina coach, because really what I do as much as it started with pregnancy, and that is a huge contributor to pelvic floor challenges, the conversation needs to span through our entire life to our all, all like all different life stages. Sarah and I've been kind of joking around about how kind of weak our society have, have really gotten and we're not very good at dealing with the discomfort. And I only just found out that actual painkillers for uh, when you're going into childbirth only started coming into effect in the early 1900s. And even then, just before that, they were actually using chloroform to help sedate people when going into pregnancy. And I start thinking about how strong women had to be before then. It is magnificent. And just the entire biological processes that women have to go through um, as compared to us, us very simple men, I have so much respect for it. And that's why like, I'm so excited to learn more about this and also share this uh, with more men. And hopefully we have male coaches who listen to this and are excited to hear about this. But before we get into anything, anything like over detailed, let's break it down right to the beginning for people who don't quite understand some of the more basics of what we're going to be talking about. So can you just explain to us what is the pelvic floor? Yeah, I'll use my models because I know you have a video here so I can, I have lots of little demos here as well. So this is a, this is a pelvis. This is a female pelvis and male and female anatomy both have a pelvis. 
it's a slightly different shape. So in the female pelvis, it's a little bit wider. Um, the male pelvis is narrower and a little bit higher. In the female pelvis, we also have three different openings. So this is now, if you can imagine that this is a person laying down on their back and you can see the anus, you can see the vulva, you can see the opening of the vagina and the opening of the urethra. So we have three openings. We also have a uterus on the inside in terms of organs. And so because it's because of the shape, because of the number of openings, because we have a uterus that can grow and birth babies, we face, and because we go through hormonal changes, menstruation, all sorts of things, we face additional challenges compared to people with male anatomy. So the pelvic floor, whether you have male or female anatomy is a group of muscles that close off the base of the pelvis. So we have a, we have a bony scaffolding of hip bones. We have our spine, we have our sacrum, we have the tailbone, but then we have the muscles that actually attach to the point. So pubic joint, sits bones, and tailbone. There's three layers of the pelvic floor. The first one is primarily superficial. It's primarily sexual response oriented. Second layer, primarily responsible for managing these openings. So keeping them closed when we don't want something to come out or allowing them to open if we want something to go in or in the case of childbirth, come out of the vagina. And the third layer is primarily responsible for organ support. So mine are a little bit shifted here, but bladder, uterus, rectum. And, uh, and then the pelvic floor also plays a role in our pelvic and spinal stability. And it's actually the, the foundation of the core. So being in fitness, we've all heard of core exercise or core fitness and the pelvic floor is the foundation of that core. But in all years of fitness education certifications, that that piece has been left out of the conversation, and it really needs needs more attention. So, it's a group of layers. So it's not just one muscle. It's a, it's like thirteen to fifteen, depending on how you name them. Groups um, or three layers and groups of muscles. All of those jobs that they they have are really really important. So again, why have we not been told earlier in our life about the importance of this part of our body and the fact that we are females, we will go through menstruation, we will go through hormonal fluctuations. The majority of us will be pregnant and give birth at some point. We will all go through menopause. So all of those have major influence on the function of that group of muscles. So we deserve better information a lot earlier. Um, so that's what the pelvic floor is. That's, that's where it is from a, a landmark perspective. And those are the jobs that the pelvic floor performs. Mm -hmm. And I think, first of all, let's just give a shout out that there's a layer that is mainly for sexual response. So that's pretty rad as a female. And also from someone who's gone through numerous trainings of teaching, you know, women, bar classes, group fitness classes, a personal training certification, a little bit in bar, you kind of touch on it, but otherwise it's completely left out. And as Kim mentioned, it is the base of your core. It is so important for stability. And any time that I've even heard it referred to or mentioned in a class is usually like, engage your pelvic floor. And most people are like, what the heck are they talking about? And you can kind of see everyone looking around. I actually have someone who's really close to me right now who is in the early stages of pregnancy. And she has been doing some online classes and she's like, what does it mean when they say engage your pelvic floor? They were talking about it, but I don't really understand. And I do think that there is such a lack of information on the importance of it, 
what it does, how it functions, how to engage it, why you would even want to, and especially as women are preparing for pregnancy. So I know that you touched a little bit on your mom's story and you were really determined to have a different story and to teach women how to have a different story than that. So have you seen great success or differences in pregnancy for the most part of women who maybe prepare their pelvis or understand pelvic health versus those who don't? Yeah. Um, so I, I sort of view it like, and unfortunately we live in a society in a world where I'm very much a preventive mind minded person. And there are some people who are, are like me, but the majority of people will will fix a problem that already exists rather than take steps to prevent something from happening in the first place. So what I've learned over the years of working with many different women, but starting out primarily with pregnant women is the people who are pregnant for the first time don't really have a problem to fix and they don't necessarily see the importance or the reasons behind learning about their pelvic floor. It was the second and third time, fourth time moms who were actually the biggest customers because they've now been, they've come back and said, I wish I listened to you. I wish somebody had told me about this. I wish, I wish, I wish. And so now they have some issues or they maybe didn't have the best experience the first time around. So now they have a motivation to do something differently. So again, part of it, like, I think if we start this conversation much earlier, I think it would just become the norm that everybody knows about their pelvic floor. Everybody takes steps to prepare it in pregnancy. So in terms of the, the people that I've worked with, the, the, I mean, I don't have statistics and, and there are, there's no way that you could 100% study and say, if you do pelvic floor exercise, then you won't tear, or you won't have this, or you won't have that. So we do have some research to show that pelvic floor muscle training in pregnancy can help reduce postpartum incontinence, but also incontinence during pregnancy. Um, and then we also have uh, research to show in the early uh, weeks postpartum as well. The, the people who are starting it post, um, sorry, pelvic floor exercise are more likely to regain function and less likely to have long-term lingering effects. So we do have some research to support that. Um, Kegels are one form of pelvic floor exercise, and there's a lot more that goes into pelvic floor wellness or pelvic floor fitness than just Kegels, which is what most people have heard about. And especially in pregnancy, while Kegels do play a role in my opinion, it's actually more important to learn how to relax the pelvic floor. And I would say that this is true for people who are not pregnant as well. A lot of people associate, well, interpret their symptoms as, as weakness and weakness being laxity, but we can have overactivity in muscles that contributes to weakness. So sometimes people actually become stronger and overcome their symptoms when they learn how to relax. So in pregnancy, part of what I do is teach people how to connect with their pelvic floor, understand where it is, understand how to access it, understand all of its jobs, but also have them appreciate that birth is a vaginal birth is, is an elimination like pee and poo. We need our muscles to relax, to allow something to come out of our body. And if we are constantly just squeezing or just trying to contract and engage, engage the pelvic floor the entire time, we might build up overactivity in the muscles. So there's less like, um, uh, the muscles kind of lose that they're hindered in their ability to ease and to allow and to relax and release tension. So to answer your question, I, I mean, in my experience, the people that I work with who go through and are educated, they, first of all, go into their birth feeling a lot more confident. They are usually more mobile, more dynamic 
meaning they're moving around more in their pregnancy, which is beneficial. And they also know what to do in the early stages postpartum from a recovery perspective. So those three things make a huge difference compared to the people that kind of go in saying, well, everybody else does it. I think let's will just go with the flow and see what happens. Mm-hmm. So I actually had a teacher, a professor, and she was the first person who I'd ever hear talk about pelvic floor health. And she brought it up in class. I think it might've been a Chinese medicine class. And she said to start noticing when you go pee, if you're like pushing out like a spaz, your pee, and if you can just sit there and relax because most people don't. So would you say that that like the way that we do that as females and just all of the tension we hold is also in daily activities such as like peeing or when we get super tense and we clench our butt cheek and everything just starts to tense up. Does that also play a role in overall pelvic health? Tribute to pelvic floor. It's not just Kegels. We, we always, we just think about do exercise, pelvic floor exercise as Kegels and that's it. But if you think about, um, so strategies that I see that are very common are one of them is if you're, if you don't want to have to get a, like, if you don't want to uh, have to go to the bathroom. I don't want to get a strong urge because I'm not going to be by a bathroom or I don't want to have to, you know, worry that I'm going to leak in my exercise class or I've got my baby with me. I really don't want to have to go into a public restroom, public restroom, excuse me. Then people will start to avoid drinking water. So, so their logic is, well, if I don't drink anything, then there won't be anything in my bladder to leak out or to give me urges to have to go to the bathroom. But what happens is we become, the, the urine becomes more concentrated, we become dehydrated, the urine's more concentrated, that's irritating to the bladder. So the bladder is going to signal you more frequently and more strongly to get that out. So we have um, people who who have these behaviors that think that they are doing something helpful, but they're actually starting to contribute to challenges. So that's one thing. You mentioned clenching the butt cheeks. So if you are sitting a lot of the time, especially if you sit in sort of a hunched, like tucked under position, or that's me. I'm just going to call myself out. That is me. (laughs) Not alone. You're not alone. Um, Very common postpartum. So when we are pregnant, we have this shifting center of gravity. Obviously the belly is growing out in front of us. And initially there's sort of a tilting forward of the pelvis. And then what happens is we start to kind of unconsciously lean back to counteract that weight. And we start to grip a little bit more on our butt muscles and in our pelvic floor. So it's common postpartum to have very flat glutes and to have kind of like, um, you know, very grippy pelvic floor. And that's like, it's like the, the body's way of managing the changes that have happened to our core control mechanisms while we're pregnant with all the stretch of the muscles, the movement away, the diastasis that's happening, the additional load on the pelvic floor, all of that is happening as well. Um, fear, trauma falls. So many things can contribute to tension in, in, in the pelvic floor. And then of course, some of that can create symptoms. And then those people, again, interpret those symptoms as weakness and laxity. So they must have to do more Kegels. And then that can sort of compound, compound the issue really. So, um, yes. So it's super common for people to, I think it's more common actually for people to have to learn how to relax first before they start adding in the pelvic floor activation. Mm -hmm. So if someone did have poor pelvic floor health, what are some of the main challenges or symptoms they would come across? Uh, Incontinence is definitely one of the most common, and it's the one that we would hear about the most through media. So we see lots of pad companies telling us that it's just part of being a woman, 
that we just have to put a pad in and carry on and we can get on the back of a motorcycle with a very handsome man and be, you know, be confident. So that's common. Um, incontinence, we have stress urinary incontinence, and that's where little bits of urine leak out with a laugh, cough, sneeze, jump. Uh, and we have urgent continence. So that's where we have all of a sudden something triggers us and we have to get to the bathroom. We feel like we, we aren't going to make it and we might have a full release of the bladder. You can have a combination of the two. You can also have anal incontinence. So that's where gas or stool would leak out. Obviously a lot more life altering. It is less common, thankfully that that happens, but it's still possible. So that's incontinence. Incontinence statistics, so urinary incontinence statistics is somewhere, you know, mid 30-ish percent, 40-ish percent of women. The other one that's very common and is actually more common statistically is called organ prolapse. So that's where the bladder, the uterus, and or the rectum. It can happen with our urethra and our intestines as well, but the most common would be bladder, uterus, rectum shift out of their proper anatomical position and they start to bulge into or descend into the vagina. And statistically, it's about one in two. So 50% of women will have some degree of prolapse and early stage prolapse is often asymptomatic. So a lot of people have no idea that they have it, which is, I mean, you could argue that that's a good thing. You don't know you have it, it's not bothersome. Um, but it's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to have screening with pelvic floor physical therapy every single year. So you can catch it at an early stage and be in a better position to manage it, prevent it from getting worse and potentially even you know, improve it or, or reverse it. So that's pelvic organ prolapse. Um, pelvic pain, we also, uh, it's very common. So pelvic pain is where it could be pain in and around the vulva. It could be pain with sex, could be pain in the tailbone, uh, pain in the pubic joint. Like there's lots of different types of pain that would fall under pelvic girdle pain. Um, I didn't talk about symptoms with prolapse. So, so many are asymptomatic, but some of the more common symptoms would be low back pain, feeling like you have something like, you, you know, you, it's like you could feel a tampon. You feel like there's something inside you, um, difficulty starting the flow of urine, difficulty completely emptying your rectum during a bowel movement, sometimes discomfort with, uh, insert of sex feeling like a sense of dragging or heaviness. Like you, you kind of feel vulnerable. You feel like something's going to fall out almost. Um, if, if you menstruate difficulty inserting a tampon or tampons or menstrual cups getting pushed out. So those would be the most common symptoms associated with prolapse. Um, and then the other one that I'm going to put in there is back pain. So I talked about it as a, as a symptom of prolapse, but Low back pain is very common. I'm sure you have dealt in your practice with people with low back pain. It's very common. And there was one recent study. There's a few studies, but the most recent one, a uh, Canadian study showed 95%, just over 95% of the women in this study who presented with low back pain also had some form of pelvic floor dysfunction. So it's, it's an overlooked people go to massage therapy, chiropractor, acupuncture, fitness trainers, and those can all be beneficial and helpful, but often pelvic floor physical therapy is the missing link in terms of figuring out the root cause of what is, what is contributing to that chronic back pain. Yeah. I mean, if I take somebody through and what I've been taught in school or books or anything like that, if, if I start taking somebody through a bracing sequence, it starts at the feet. First, we create torque at the feet that externally rotates at the, at the knees and at the thighs. And then the next thing is, okay, now let's engage the core but we completely skip over the pelvis. 
which that kind of makes me want to go back and refill a whole bunch of the videos that I've already shot. Because as I start to learn more about this, I'm realizing there's a whole missing step there. We skipped the pelvic area and we went straight up to the core instead of actually putting enough significance into that area. So I'm super excited to learn more about that and start to incorporate it better into our practices or just send our clients over to you, one of the two. But associated with those risks that you were talking about in those symptoms, are there risk factors that kind of take it a step further? Like what happens if we start to, or women start to feel these symptoms, can there be a worse effect later? Yeah. So the, the, there's many different risk factors. We've talked about one already pregnancy and childbirth. So those hands down would be the two, the two most common. So pregnancy and childbirth are huge contributors or, um, increase your risk of experiencing pelvic floor dysfunction. Um, diet sometimes. So if we have a lot of inflammation, a lot of inflammatory foods that can sometimes contribute to challenges, um, obesity. So higher BMI obesity genetics. So if we have a, a family history of that can, um, that can smoking and that's more so, so there's a couple things there, but circulation, but also coughing. And that would also be asthma or, uh, emphysema, anything where you have chronic coughing, that is also a, a contributor hormones. So we have a hormone influence and this is especially apparent. It can be apparent in the early postpartum phase where we have a decline of estrogen. And then that's kind of mimicking or giving us a glimpse into what will happen as we approach menopause. So as we are approaching menopause, and then once we reach it, we no longer produce estrogen and the tissues in and around our pelvis and the walls of the vagina around our bladder, they love estrogen. And when we no longer have it circulating, the tissues that were once sort of juicy and supple with that estrogen start to thin and the walls of the vagina narrow. Um, so hormones are another piece and their uh, risk factors. Yeah. So those would be kind of the, the, the more common one It could be, there's some, we have conflicting research with regards to exercise. So we have some literature that would show chronic heavy lifting, and that doesn't necessarily have to be fitness, heavy lifting. It could be people like mail carriers who carry around a heavy weight every single day for their jobs. Um, those, that would be an increased risk. There have been some studies to look at CrossFit, um, and long distance running. So we do have some literature to show long distance running. So people who are running consistently every single day for longer periods of time have an increased risk. Um, it was interesting looking at running and CrossFit. A lot of people thought that CrossFit was actually going to be more contribute to more symptoms or more issues. And it was actually the long-term running. So that was interesting. And that was fairly recent, um, research. So I wouldn't say that heavy lifting is bad for your pelvic floor, but it can, it has been shown to, especially if people are doing it for longer periods of time, um, it has been shown to potentially be a contributing factor as well. So we chatted a little bit about pain related to low back pain and sometimes during pregnancy, but can you explain a little bit the connection between pelvic inflammation or issues with the pelvic floor causing period cramps? Because that's something we work a lot with our clients on. And I have read a lot of books on this. I've listened to tons of podcasts. I've done courses and I've only seen the pelvic health really touched on once in my all of my research. So I'm interested to hear about your um, knowledge and understanding on the correlation between period cramps and pelvic health. There's lots in there. So um, <clears throat> endometriosis is one big contributor that's been getting a lot more um, awareness, I would say. So endometriosis can be a contributing factor. Adenomyosis, which is sort of like a sister of 
endometriosis can be a contributing factor. Organ prolapse. So we talked earlier when the, the organs have shifted out of their optimal position, there's, there's, uh, that influences the tension on the muscles and also the, the ligament, the structures within the pelvis. And oftentimes people who have incontinence or, or prolapse are more guarded. So they have more tension. They, they, they have this response when you feel like something is going to leak or fall out of you, you're going to be on high alert. And so when we have chronic tension, tension influences, restricts blood flow circulation. So that in and of itself can be one contributor. So we have those, those like endometriosis and, and adenomyosis can be part of the pain. When we experience pain, we generally tense up. So then it, it's sort of like a vicious cycle that, that happens. So it's, um, it can be lots of different things, but a lot of it is the, the, the tension in the muscles and the restriction of blood flow. Um, yeah. So it, it, the other thing that can happen is if we have like a lot of people after childbirth in particular, if they have laxity in the pelvic floor, so meaning not as much tone in the muscles. So this would be opposite to the people that have more, more than what would be considered optimal tone. Sometimes they experience a lot more, um, not just cramping, but also achiness in and around the vulva. And that can also be it, it, lack of integrity, it lack kind of loss of that support mechanisms or the support mechanisms within and around the pelvis. So we can have hormone influence, we can have muscle tension, we can have muscle laxity um, and, and those other conditions that can all be contributors to that. Mm -hmm. And that is a very, very overlooked part of the healing process or women understanding about period cramps. And also just the fact that many women think that it's normal to have cramps and it's just become so common that just like pelvic floor health, nobody really talks about it. Everyone kind of assumes that, oh, it's just part of being a female when really it's not. So I want to circle back real quick to what you said about the um, lack of blood flow and circulation. So I know we chatted a little bit about this before we started the podcast, but there's been a post that's been circulating on doing spin and it reducing the blood flow towards your pelvic floor. And I know that sometimes like headline posts are put out there so that it catches attention, but I've seen a lot of people reposting it and talking about it. And I've even had some clients ask me about doing like a spin class. I know I have a Peloton that I love or just doing any sort of spin and your pelvic health. So can you touch a little bit on that? You should have seen Sarah's face because I got like we got her the Peloton for her birthday. And when she saw this first post, she was terrified. <laughs> I was like, I got to stop riding my Peloton. We want to have kids not too long. I'm going to be hooped. And then I was starting to get fearful about how much I've been riding it. But just like anything, in information requires context. And we can't always just take one piece of the puzzle and then generalize it. So the Peloton's burning in the backyard. So. Yeah. No, <laughs> riding your Peloton. So the, the challenge I would say to that, anything we do in excess is probably not the best. We, we benefit from varied movement. Um, you know, so if you are, it, we, we have some research that looks at cyclists, um, who are spending lots of time in the seat, you know, long distance cycling, but there is a lot, there is restriction of blood flow and circulation. There is, there is, um, sometimes interference with the nerve, specifically the pudendal nerve, pudendal neuralgia is very common in long-term cyclists. So it's not to say that cycling is bad for your pelvic floor. We can't say that, but if it's something that you are, if that's your main form of exercise and that's all you're doing, then you're probably at a, maybe a bit of an increased risk there. But 
it, it, I wouldn't say that you should stop riding your Peloton or stop going to spin class because you're going to do damage to your pelvic floor. Absolutely not. It just, it, um, vary it with other things. So go spinning a couple times a week or three times a week, or, you know, there's no magic number in there, but just make sure that you're offsetting that with other things that you are doing release work for your pelvic floor as well, that you are using potentially a wider, um, have a, a larger seat that you put padding a gel seat on that you put pads in your shorts. Like there's lots of things we can do to mitigate it, come in and out of the saddle. Um, and again, do some pelvic floor release type exercises, but I wouldn't blanket statement say that pelvic floor, sorry, that Pelotons or bikes or cycling is bad for your pelvic floor. I think we can't, we can't, um, for a long time, when I first started doing this, we, we meaning pelvic health professionals, whether it's fitness or physio, there wasn't a ton of research out there. And when it first came out and social media was also starting to grow, there was all this like, stop doing this. Don't do crunches. It's bad. It's going to make your diastasis worse. Don't do this. And there was all these don't, 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 don't list. And we, and I was part of it. We, we were all doing this. And then we started to become a little bit more like, well, what about this person who can do this and do this and this? And what about this? And then we started to get more research and more people were challenging the norm. And now we've all kind of come to a consensus that it's very individualized. And we can't say that that exercise is bad. We have to look at that person doing that exercise and look at their strategy, look at their symptoms. Is it taking them towards their goals? And then if there's something that we feel needs to change, doesn't mean that we have to stop that exercise. What can we change? What variables can we change about that exercise? What other exercise could we do that it, that is um, going to achieve the same goals, but is going to help with the symptom management or, you know, that type of thing. So I think we just have to look a little bit more, um, we have to be less in the, that's not safe. And this, these are safe realm and just say, Oh, let's give it a try. And if you, if you're cycling and you love it, do it, but just make sure you're balancing it with other things. So I just say, do what brings you joy, but make sure you have a balance between effort and ease and whatever it is that you're doing and that you don't stick to just one thing all the time. So let's say you are that beautiful woman who finally got on the back of the Harley and Jason Momoa is driving that Harley down the road and you're having a great time, but then all of a sudden you start to feel you can't hold it and you pee on the back of the Harley. Now, Jason Momoa is probably not going to be too happy about that, but he's so beautiful. It doesn't even matter. He, he understands and he, you know, he parks the Harley, but you realize that you got some healing that you need to do. Something's going on with your pelvic floor health. What are some healing strategies that people can begin to implement to start to get them back to the point where they can ride Harley with Jason Momoa? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So a, a couple of things that I would say there. One, if you are with Jason Momoa or whoever you're with, doesn't matter. If you are in a partnered relationship, it's important that you talk about your symptoms and what you're dealing with with your partner. There's a lot of relationship breakdown that happens as a result of pelvic floor dysfunction. So we just people who are experiencing it will start to withdraw because maybe they experience pain. Maybe they're afraid of leaking. Maybe they're afraid of their partner seeing or feeling something. And so they are, they just start to avoid the partner then interprets that as I'm doing something wrong. They don't love me anymore. They don't want to, you know, it, so we need to have open lines of, of communication, um, as, as a, as a baseline. The other thing is you're not alone in this. And there are so many options for help that are not band-aid approaches like pads. So pads, in my opinion, are something that can provide temporary support relief 
while the person is seeking treatment. And that's the part that's left out of messaging. We, we are told, we are given the impression that this is for the, for the rest of our lives. And if people accept that, they could spend between 20 and $50,000 over their lifetime on pads, which wow. is not okay. Yeah. Um, and think about the cost of the environment as well, right? All the, the number of pads that they're using in a day that then just get tossed into, into the garbage can. So anyway, sidebar there. Um, but pads can play a role while you are seeking treatment. And in terms of the, the number one thing that I recommend every single person do, um, especially vagina owners or people born with a uterus, women see a pelvic floor physical therapist at least once a year. And I always equate this to our oral health, where we have been conditioned from a young age to brush our teeth twice a day, floss, go see the dentist once or twice a year for a checkup. And we go, even if we have no toothache or no signs of any issues, we just go because that's what we've been told we're supposed to do. And if we, again, were told at an early age that we have this amazing group of muscles and they are responsible for all these incredibly important jobs and that we are going to menstruate and that we're going through hormone fluctuations and we'll probably be pregnant at some point and we're going to go through menopause. That means we need extra attention and extra care. Here's the, the exercises you can do. Here's the lifestyle strategies that are important. Here's the care provider that you see once you become sexually active. So that's a general, a general age, age in terms of starting that. But pelvic floor physical therapy is hands down, in my opinion, the, the non-negotiable. It is the best first line of defense that we all have. We go and we have usually about an hour an assessment, a whole body assessment, looking at breath work, looking at movement mechanics. And a small portion of that will also be an internal evaluation using gloved fingers. It is nothing like a pap. Everybody starts to squeam because nobody likes their, their annual pap. Um, it's done with gloved fingers to assess organ position, capacity to contract and relax the pelvic floor. Is there any scar tissue that might be impeding function? Um, checking balance of, you know, is one side more, uh, lacks than another? Is there balance between the two sides? So there's a lot of really important information that people find out. And then from there, you understand what type of movement and exercise you would benefit to focus on. So again, it's not just Kegels are thrown out as this blanket statement cure-all for any pelvic floor dysfunction. And we, we know now a lot more that that's a form of pelvic floor exercise, but we need to incorporate a whole body approach. So my philosophy is learn how to connect with your pelvic floors through a Kegel exercise and coordinate it with the breath. So I call it the core breath. I've got videos on my YouTube channel to walk people through how to do that and then take that and incorporate it into movement. So squats, bicep curls, push-ups, any, pretty much any movement you can imagine if we can harness the pelvic floor and our breath in that movement, not only are we turning most exercises into a core exercise, but we are, that's our power center. So we can often start to lift heavier or move more efficiently when we can do that. And that's not to say that every single movement, we have to voluntarily activate the pelvic floor. It's, it's from a retraining. So somebody who is symptomatic, who is looking to overcome symptoms of prolapse or incontinence, I would want to retrain the anticipatory element of the pelvic floor. And then get to the point where, again, they can move, they can do whole body movement without having to activate the pelvic floor all the time. There's some movements where they will, um, but also make sure that we are giving the pelvic floor an opportunity to meet the, the demands of that task, if that makes sense. So always coming in interfering with a voluntary pelvic floor activation, I don't think is our, 
our gold standard from a retraining. We want to do that. But then we're kind of like, okay, remember pelvic floor, this is what you're supposed to do. I'm going to give you a task here. Can you, can you meet the demands? Um, so pelvic floor, physical therapy, whole body movement, incorporating the pelvic floor diet and lifestyle. So looking at removing um, bladder irritants, making sure you're hydrated, taking out inflammatory foods, making sure you're eliminating efficiently, meaning pooping every single day without straining constipation is a huge contributor to pelvic floor dysfunction. So we need to, we need to get on top of that, um, and move in varied ways. Um, make sure we have a balance between the effort and the ease. So wellness gang, Kim is obviously a wealth of information, and I'm going to be trying to be going a lot harder on the podcast notes for this podcast and any in the future, because I feel like there's like six blogs we can write just in this podcast alone. So for the videos that she mentioned or anything else in the podcast, check out embodiedwellnessco.com slash blog slash vagina coach to pick up any of the information that we've talked about today. And something else that you mentioned that I think is really important is this communication with your partner. And we see this a lot of the time with just overall like menstrual cycles as well, where we as females don't necessarily know what to do or what we need or even how to help ourselves with the issues we have going on, right? So as you mentioned, someone might be having incontinence or having maybe pain with sex and they think that they're the problem and that it's just something they have to deal with and they aren't necessarily open or aware of the fact that it doesn't have to be like that. And there are ways to support ourselves. And I think that that also contributes to the disconnect is I, as a female, don't necessarily know what's really going on. And then I draw back a little bit. And so it's hard for me to talk about something that I'm not even fully aware of, like what's going on or how to help myself or if I can help myself. So what would you say are some ways um, for females that they'd be able to communicate with their partner if they're not fully sure what's going on or just to open up that line of communication? Mm -hmm. You're so right. And there's, um, there's, we, we deal with a lot and, and this isn't a pity party, but just, there are a lot of changes that happen within the female body that, that we need to manage that. And, and a lot of it is comes down to lack of education and awareness. And when you aren't, when you don't know what's going on or when you think you're the only one, or when you're embarrassed about it, or you're ashamed, or maybe you've been dismissed by a care provider because it's, that's just normal. Um, then you're, you're most likely going to start to withdraw and then you start to become you feel like you're not worthy. You feel like it's your fault. You feel like you're doing something wrong. You know, all that. So there's, there's a lot of emotion and a lot of, um, uh, I don't know the, the, I'm thinking of a different word, but there's fear and shame and embarrassment. And then if we are thinking it's our fault and if potentially we're in a, in a partnered relationship and that person is feeling some sort of, um, uncertainty with regards to why are you not doing this? Why this? Da, 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 da. And so it's, it's just going to become, it's just going to exacerbate. So I think that um, it, it comes down to that education and knowledge. And many of us, you, myself, lots of people are, are out there trying to preach. So hopefully we go beyond headlines and social media and people are actually getting, and I, I know that it's happening. I, I hear from lots of people who follow me. I know people, uh, my colleagues, people are seeking or sorry, people are gaining more awareness and they now know what questions to ask. They now know there is help. They now know there are care providers to go to that can hopefully ease the conversations that may happen um, between a partner. Um, I, I, 
I don't, I don't know of any, you know, magic ways to, to talk about it other than just to be vulnerable and to be open. And hopefully that is a foundation of a good relationship anyway, to say, this is what I'm experiencing in my body. I'm taking these steps to figure out what's going, what's going on so that I can understand and potentially make changes that will help support it for right now you know, when this happens, so it might, maybe it's pain with sex. This is what happens. And this is what I feel in my body. This, maybe it's a position change. Maybe it's a time of day change. So people who experience prolapse typically are more symptomatic as the day goes on. So maybe they change so that they are more morning, um, have morning, morning intimacy as opposed to later in the day. So, um, looking at kind of like with movement, looking at varied ways, looking at things that what variables can we change here together to work on this? And I need your support while I am seeking out, um, this treatment. So this is what I'm doing to try to help myself. This is what I would benefit or need from you while we are going through, while I'm going through this. And it really, you know, I said, we, cause it kind of is a, we thing. If you are in a relationship with a person, what one person is experiencing is there is within their own body, but it, it's, you are in a partnership. And, um, I think we need an opportunity to, uh, to share in that knowledge seeking and maybe even have the partner come to the assessments to understand so that they can hear also from the therapist. So a lot of uh, my former business partner is a pelvic floor physical therapist, and she has um, husbands, partners coming in all the time to understand. They've, she's even had women who bring their teen daughters in so that they can see what's happening and they can also learn. Um, and I think that's a big step that that can help too. So that the person feels, the person experiencing it feels validated. And the person who is the partner can also hear from another person's perspective and maybe even um, get some knowledge with regards to things that could change. Is that, is that helpful? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So now that we're kind of on the, the back half, the, the late night radio show, part of the podcast, let's talk about another intimate topic that I think, well, I think we've already talked about it a little bit, but let's dive a little bit deeper into sex. Um, what role does pelvic floor health um, play on sex? Uh, past what we were just speaking about as far as like in relationships, what does the actual physicality part of the pelvic floor have to do with sex? A lot. Um, so we have, that's where, I mean, we have the, the pleasure. Um, we, we, it's where, it's how we either experience or don't experience pleasure. And the muscles can contribute, <coughs> excuse me, to our capacity to experience pleasure or not, our, our pelvic floor can play a role in potentially allowing something to be inserted if we want that to happen or not. People who maybe have fear or trauma or maybe have overactivity in the pelvic floor, they may not even be able to accommodate something even as small as a pinky finger to be inserted. So there, there's lots of things that can contribute to the inability to experience all the different types of um, of intimacy or sex with somebody or even on their own. And that's another piece in there. Sex doesn't have to be with another person. We can, we can explore our own bodies. We can have self-pleasure. And that's something that again, is a, there's a lot of taboo associated with. Um, so from an insertive sex perspective, we need the pelvic floor muscles to be able to relax, to allow something to come in. So when I was talking about that second layer that manages the openings in insertive sex, we need the, we need 
the muscles to be able to relax, to allow something to come in. And if we can't experience that, then we may not be able to experience insertive sex and we may not be able to have the blood flow and circulation that could allow us to um, go through the arousal stage and potentially reach climax as well. Um, you can have anal sex. So there are some people who, who participate in anal sex and the same thing the same thing applies there. We need to have the capacity for the muscles to relax, to allow something to come in. Um, so those are kind of the, the main things the, the muscles contribute to either having the capacity to relax or the capacity to contract an orgasm is actually involuntary contract and relax cycles of the pelvic floor. And if we aren't able to relax enough to be able to allow blood flow and circulation, then the pleasure may not even be able to be sensed for us to be, to get to that point, if, if that makes sense. So, um, th the other piece that I'll mention, so that's kind of like the, the structure, I guess, but the other piece is the mental. If we feel like, um, so there can be a distraction, like, uh, is, is my vagina tight enough? Does my partner, can they feel a lot of people feel this after giving birth, they feel like they're too loose and their partner doesn't feel anything. Can they feel my prolapse? Am I going to leak urine? And, and then, so you're kind of going, you're, you're not in, you're not present in that moment. You're thinking about all of these other things usually to do with your own body and potentially the, the, the interpretation of that other person. Uh, so that can also then interfere with your capacity to enjoy, seek, uh, experience pleasure, experience an orgasm. So we have the physical and we have the mental component and I'm not a sexual health uh, counselor per se, but I can help people understand what might be mechanically. So kind of looking at the biomechanics of it or mentally influencing their capacity to enjoy or not enjoy the moment. So sex is obviously a sweaty topic, but so is exercise. What role does your pelvic health play in exercise? Huge. So we've talked about it being the foundation of the core. It's a place where we can <clears throat> um, derive our power. The thing to consider is the people who have incontinence, the people that have prolapse, the people who are dealing with pain, they may be avoiding exercise. So they may be, they have maybe stopped running. Maybe they don't go to boot camp classes. They they don't ride a Peloton anymore. They don't do things because they think that it's going to make their pelvic floor challenges worse. So that's one piece that we have to address that there's increased risk of other health challenges because of the people that have stopped moving because of their pelvic floor challenges. And again, thinking that it's normal, thinking it's just something they have to put up with, not knowing that there's care. There's also people that if we go back to that list where we were saying like, this is not safe, this is not safe, this is not safe, there still exists a lot of that uh, thinking that I was told I can't do crunches, I can't do planks, <coughs> excuse me, I can't do rotations, I can't do this, I can't run, I can't jump, I can't, the, the, the. so there's, there's a lot of people now working out in very restricted movement patterns who then can start to create issues. And in, you know, we were talking about not having the variety anymore. Just like we need a varied diet, we need lots of different vitamins and minerals and nutrients. We, we benefit one of my favorite teachers, her company is Nutritious Movement, and she talks about 
<clears throat> movement being like our nutrition and we need, we need movement snacks, we need movement nutrients. Uh, so we need movement in, in, a, in a variety of ways. And a lot of people have avoided either exercise altogether or specific movements because they think that's gonna make things worse. But we know as movement professionals, our bodies get stronger when we introduce a load that is harder than what we did before that the muscles need to adapt to and build themselves stronger so that next time it happens, we, we can manage it, right? That's a very simplistic way to say that. The pelvic floor is, is a group of muscles. We have slow twitch fibers. We have fast twitch fibers. We need to train it in a dynamic movement in varied ways with different loads so that it has the, it's given an opportunity to be able to become stronger. So the, the basics is learning how to activate the pelvic floor, learning the importance of it, how to connect it with the breath, <clears throat> then add it into movement and then start to like any sort of progressive loading. How do we make that harder? I have a series of eight exercises that I call the core confidence exercise program. It was initially designed for a postpartum recovery. And it was taking the first eight weeks postpartum and gradually increasing demand with pelvic floor centric or pelvic floor initiated movement. How can we then take those? So the movements are the core breath, which is the very first one, uh, bridge exercise, clams, bent knee lift, a seated march on the stability ball, squats, lunges, and a standing one leg transfer. I didn't make those exercises up They're They're all over the place, but we've applied the pelvic floor engagement to it. And then we can look at say, how can we make the bridge harder? How can we make the clam harder? How can we make the squat harder? And then we progressively load it so that we give them lots of opportunity to improve. So talking about movement snacks and nutrients, obviously y'all have listened to our podcast. You know, I love talking about nutrition. It is my passion. So you touched a little bit about how an anti-inflammatory diet or removing inflammatory foods can influence your pelvic health. So what role does nutrition play in pelvic health? So we talked about bladder irritants. So that's a, a common place to start where if somebody is experiencing things like urgency or frequency or even leaking, if we start with a bladder diary, similar to kind of like asking somebody to record the food intake that they have to, to look at what sort of nutrients they have, we're looking at what they're eating, but also when they're voiding and what sort of symptoms they have. So that's a, a way you do it over about three to four days. And that's a way to start to identify, are there certain foods that might be contributing to some of the symptoms that you're dealing with? So um, caffeine, alcohol, spicy foods, chocolate, artificial sweeteners, um, acidic foods. What, what am I missing? Those are the main, I would say those are the main bladder irritants. Doesn't mean that everybody will be irritated by those, but those would be the more common ones. We can then look at, <clears throat> we talked about constipation. So people who are struggling with constipation, a lot of times they aren't getting enough fiber. They aren't having enough water. So looking at how can we increase that so that they're starting to eliminate without straining but also symptoms like um, there's something called interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome. And that is uh, a lot of people when they remove inflammatory triggers. So getting more in, um, anti-inflammatory with regards to the foods that they eat, that can make a tremendous difference for them. So any sort of um, uh, kind of pain syndromes are well-managed 
can be well-managed with removing inflammatory type foods. The other thing that I'll talk about is, is people with, um, with prolapse in particular. So bowel movements can become challenging with certain types of prolapse, but also it can create a lot of fear around having a bowel movement because people view it as straining and pressure downwards, and it's going to make my prolapse worse. And so when people start to, um, like if you have a, a successful bowel movement, they start to analyze, what did I eat yesterday? And then they will start to repeat exactly what they, what they ate. And again, they start to get into that restricted, um, not to say that what they're eating is not healthful, but there's not a lot of variety there that can then influence the gut microbiome. So we know that we benefit from having different, um, different foods in our diet to support the gut microbiome. And if we're just eating a very restricted diet, because that's what helps us poop properly, then we're missing out on a lot of other, a lot, a lot of other things. So the general recommendations that I have, um, I, I recommend that people work with a nutrition practitioner. Um, but I also have them track the amount of fiber that they're eating, the amount of water that they're drinking or not drinking. A lot of people don't drink as much as they think they're, they're drinking. And then if they can, if they want to, they could potentially do some food sensitivity testing, but they could also just do their own elimination diet. Um, gluten we know is inflammatory for many people. Dairy is inflammatory for many people, but there are other things like eggs, corn, soy, that could be potential issues for people as well. So if somebody's really serious, then AIP or an elimination diet to start out with. And then it's just a matter of how does that influence your symptoms? Do you feel better or not? And then you can start to gradually add things back in and see how your, your body reacts. But, um, yeah, I would say there's a lot of in general, in health right now, there's a lot of talk about inflammation, gut health, um, and, and removing common inflammatory foods. And I think that that serves, I know that from a, a personal perspective, but also client perspective, that that helps reduce symptoms as well. Mm -hmm. And it helps with so many different things. I always say like general strategies for a large part are enough for most people. And I love how you also chatted about how everyone is different because it can be so myopically focused where we want to say like, if you have X problem, then you can only do X, Y, and Z or everybody should da da da. And it's really not true. And I love how you also mentioned having people log their symptoms and having people log their food, which is exactly what we do with our clients. I have a symptom log when everyone does their intake. It's like, what did you eat? Bowel movements, how did it feel? Stress, any symptoms? Because that is how we really gather information, especially from an individual perspective. You know, many people will say like, oh, I randomly get Da, 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 da. I'm like, well, there's nothing really random. It's just a pattern that you haven't come to understand. And so it is so powerful for anyone listening to this to take notes, right? Be your own detective. This is what I do when I'm looking at client logs, but I we actually talked about this on our podcast as well. You can do this. Anyone can do this for themselves. Write down what you're eating, how much water you're drinking, even sleep, stress, movement is also information we gather from our clients. And then look at your symptoms. And all you're doing is identifying patterns. If something isn't going well for you, cool, pull back a little bit. If you have certain things that are going really well or improve your symptoms, cool, do a little bit more of that. But again, it doesn't have to be black and white, never this, always that. It's about experimenting with our own bodies and really being our own detectives to understand what things move us forward towards our goals and what things maybe aren't supporting our health at this time. Kim, there is professional and then there's professional. And then there's Kim. 
And exactly. <laughs> and honestly, thank you so much for coming on today because you are, as far as I know, the best of the best in what you do. You are the vagina coach. So if anybody hasn't gone and checked you out yet, check her out um, on Instagram at the vagina coach or vaginacoach.com. Right here in front of me, I've got your pelvic floor, a practical guide to solving the most intimate problems. Kim's third book. Um, she didn't ask me to promote that. I'm reading it right now. So I figured I'd promote it to you guys. Um, and I think the next step for me is both Sarah and I are going to be taking your certification course um, because I'm fully bought in. Thank you so much for coming on today. Is there anything else you'd like to say before you go? Uh, light bladder leakage is not just part of being a woman and there is help. You don't need to accept paths as your destiny. And I appreciate you both having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That's a wrap, folks. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. This podcast provides general information and discussions about health and related subjects. The information and other content provided in this podcast or any linked materials are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice, nor is the information a substitute for professional medical expertise or treatment. If you or any other person has medical concern, you should consult with your healthcare provider and seek other professional medical treatment. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you may have heard on this podcast or any linked materials. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or emergency services immediately. The opinions and views expressed on this podcast are of no relation to those of any academic, hospital, health practice, or other institution.